chapter number two. I want to read verses four through eight, and we'll make some other headways tonight besides these verses. I'm going to read verses the four through eight here this evening. You know, you know, it wasn't long till you had men's conference when, as I was uh, getting ready at the house tonight, I got a text from some guy talking about quote-unquote friend had recommended some body wash. I said it was really good. It was cedar wood smell. So I, I, I texted back and said, well, I'm more of a hickory person. And they said, they got that? And then I said, well, if you haven't tried Naughty Pine, then you just... I said, no, I'm just spitballing. I don't know nothing about this body wash, but... <laughs> I'm sure it's great. Amen. Hallelujah. Second Peter chapter number two, verse four. Remember, we finished off last week talking about, about judgment. Judgment grinding slow, but coming. We left with the example of Aaron, all those different places in his life where it looked like, you know, his hand should have been called and it wasn't. But the day came, called him up to the mountain, stripped him of his garments. He's dead. God hadn't missed a thing. And so we're continuing with uh, that mindset of judgment. So you can keep that in mind as we go on into verse number four here as Peter is making his plea for if God, he said, spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person. A preacher of righteousness bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes condemned them with an overthrow making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly and delivered just lot vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked for that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds the gist of it here is this Peter's reaching back in the past and he's given other instances where God brought judgment upon the people and at the same time delivered those that were quote unquote righteous from uh, the overflow or or the disaster that if God did it before he can do it again for the first little while of my lesson I I'm, I got this a my title has an and in it because I feel like part of it could be under this label the other part could be under this label the first part of my lesson tonight is on God's prerogative on God's prerogative the second part of my lesson this evening will be traits of a traitor and we won't finish with that till next week but traits of a traitor. So let's start with tonight, God's prerogative. So my overall title is God's prerogative and traits of a traitor. Amen. This evening, amen. And that will fit us just fine. Lord Jesus, I come to you tonight. God, I pray, oh Lord, you have to help my mind and my spirit. God, to convey, Lord Jesus, your word, Lord, in a sound way. God, Solomon prayed, the Lord is the preacher, that you would give him acceptable words. And I pray, Lord, just the same tonight for acceptable words, oh Lord. God, let them be goads, Lord Jesus, to us that would prod us along, be instructional, Lord, in our journey. God, Lord, that we would not kick, Lord Jesus, against the pricks, but because Paul said it's hard to do so. I pray, oh Lord Jesus, enlighten us, God, through your word. God, and we'll give you the glory and the honor for it. In Jesus' name. 
Amen. And everybody say amen. You may be seated tonight. So again, last week we ended talking about, about judgment. About judgment. Uh, because again, the people that we are dealing with, in particular in Second Peter, uh, the false teachers, that is, that chapter 2 is dealing with are those that were always speaking about Judgment Day coming but never arriving. It was a finish line that always was pushed out in front of the people according to them. So we ended talking about judgment. It grinds slow, uh, but it still comes. And because it does grind slow, sometimes that gives those who are given to wrongdoing to continue in their wrongdoing because they believe that there will never be payday for their wrongdoing. There will never be any type of uh, being held accountable for their wrongdoing. Uh, but in our last example of Aaron that we did last week, we saw very simply that judgment will eventually come. Although it may not be immediate, that it's not like the wrong deed is done and then there is judgment or there is the slapping if you, of the wrist, if you will, right after it's taken place, that it will come eventually. That there is no flying by and being able to sin and do wrong and it never to be judged. That is not a possibility. That is not a biblical possibility. Peter gives a few examples from the past concerning past judgment that came and he also gave some example of God's ability to preserve others in his judgment. Three examples that he gave to us in the verses that I read to you. Number one, he gave the example of the angels that forsook God. I don't know uh, the exact segment of angels that he is speaking of. We do know a third of the angels were taken as the book of Revelation describes with the tail of the serpent whenever he was uh, thrown out of heaven when Lucifer was uh, demoted, if you will, from being a high archangel. But there's also uh, the story of the angels that came down to take advantage of the daughters of men in Genesis chapter number 6 as well, that perhaps it could be. But nevertheless, it's angels that had forsaken the Lord. He gives us an example of judgment that is coming upon them. And they are already, as the scripture says, held in chains of darkness. They are already to a certain degree receiving somewhat of a judgment, but their ultimate judgment, as with the devil and his angels and the beasts and all those things that we spoke of in our series of Revelation that they will eventually be thrown into the lake of fire. And so the other example that he gave was the old world of Noah's day. We understand the Bible says in the book of Genesis, Genesis 8 and Genesis 9, that it was continually within the heart of man. Wickedness was continually within the heart of man uh, of that day. Uh, it was all around them. They practiced it continually. And so it speaks to us about the judgment that came by virtue of the flood upon Noah's day. Yet Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He and his family, uh, the other seven members of his family, his three sons, and, or his sons and his daughter-in-laws and his wife, all of them were saved even through and by the flood. He speaks of another judgment period of time, which was the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, the fire and the brimstone that fell upon that very wicked city, and it was indeed wicked. The Bible speaks about how uh, within the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, it speaks of the Sodomites that were there, people that were given over to uh, uh, 
homosexual activity within the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, and God brought judgment upon that city. And so the idea that Peter is conveying is if God did not spare the angels that forsook him, and if God did not spare the people of Noah's day that did not adhere to the preaching of righteousness and the warning of rain coming and them needing to get on the ark, and if he did not spare uh, the wickedness of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah and all the things that they delved in, in all of those examples of time past, then there is no reason for them to believe that he will spare false teachers and, and propagators, if you will, of falsities in their day. If God didn't sneeze at that, he's not going to sneeze at this in their day, nor should I say in ours. All right? Nor in ours. And so he even goes a little further. He doesn't just show us his judgment in those three examples, but in two of them, he also shows God's ability to preserve a man. That is sound and true concerning uh, his, his relationship with God through the man Noah. The Bible says that God preserved Noah and his family from the flood. He was a preacher of righteousness during a time when men's hearts were continually wicked. So I imagine that was like a flower among a desert. Uh, he was a preacher of righteousness. He held true to that. He was obedient to God to building the ark when there was no rain. They got on the ark, all right, before any rain even started happening, and God preserved Noah and his family. And then the scripture also speaks of him preserving Lot in his day. And we'll look at him in just a little moment here a little further. So God is capable of judgment of the wicked, but he's also capable of preserving the righteous. Right? Judgment to the wicked, preserving the righteous. So God didn't spare the angels that sinned. That's the way the Bible says they sinned. He didn't spare the angels that sinned. He didn't spare the old world of the ungodly. That's the way the scripture denotes it. He did not spare them of Sodom and Gomorrah that lived ungodly. He holds the angels in chains of darkness until the day of judgment when punishment will come upon them. The ungodly of Noah's day, of course, were taken by the flood. All right? The door, whenever God shut the door on Noah and his family. Because, no, it's God that shut the door. They followed the... Here's the thing, the story of Noah and his family. They were told to get on the ark. They did. But it was God that shut the door. And whenever God shuts the door, it's shut. Didn't matter who was out there hollering, saying, I've had a change of mind, or what have you. They were destroyed by the flood. But Noah, preacher of righteousness, he was saved. He and his family. He was evidently ignored by the other population that was destroyed by the flood. Sodom, Gomorrah, not destroyed by water, but destroyed by fire, which is how the world will be destroyed the next time. Destroyed by fire and brimstone, yet the Bible says Lot was delivered, right? Lot was delivered, just Lot was delivered, but his soul was vexed. His soul was vexed. As many times as we look into the Old Testament, we paint Lot in a very horrid picture, right? But here Peter lifts him up to a degree. He even calls him that righteous man. 
uh, and the righteous man, that whole idea of him being a righteous man is there also in parentheses. It's a little parenthetical phrase there in verse 8. For that righteous man dwelling uh, among them. I will tell you this. Lot was righteous, more righteous when he entered the city than he was when he left the city. Mm-hmm. Because the Bible says his soul was vexed. That means that his soul was worn down. His soul was subdued because the Bible says of the filthy conversation. We're not talking about people cussing and being lewd. We're talking about their lifestyle. Their filthy conversation is their lifestyle. Their filthy lifestyle style wore Lot down. It subdued Lot. He was subdued by their unlawful deeds. And Peter tells us that those of Sodom and Gomorrah are to serve, that's what the scripture says in here in Peter, that they are to serve as in samples or examples to anyone else that would choose to live ungodly. He said they were destroyed because of their ungodliness, their unlawful deeds. Let them be an example. Let them be a good case study for anybody else that would desire to live ungodly. So the Bible describes Lot, though, describes him as a righteous man, all right? More plainly, a righteous man that had been vexed, a righteous man that had been affected and impacted by his environment. I think that's important. It just doesn't call him righteous, but he calls him a man that had been righteous but is being impacted by his environment. So Lot may have been a righteous man, but he was not without fault, of course. He lived in Sodom. He was hesitant to leave Sodom when the angel said, let's go. He offered his daughters in the story that we read in Genesis. He offered his daughters as substitutes when the men of the city wanted to take advantage of the angelic visitors, although they didn't know they were angelic at first, but these visitors that came to visit him, he offered his daughters as substitutes to them. He got drunk, was taking advantage of his daughters, had relations with them, and had two ancestral relationships where we get the Moabites and the Ammonites from. And yet there are some key things that might lend to this side of him as being righteous uh, because he was, in fact, not destroyed, amen, in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We said, well, he must have been a righteous man because you remember Abraham having his bargaining. If you'll find 50 righteous, will you not destroy? If you do 45, how about 45, 40, how about 40, 35, you know, and he's going down the list. If it'll be just 10, you know, we'll, we'll, and he, and we think, well, here's, here's a lot and this family seemed to be safeguarded from all that. So surely they are righteous. Can I tell you tonight that more than him being righteous in the moment of leaving, I believe God was being merciful. I believe a righteous man entered into Sodom, but because of some bad choices and being vexed daily by his environment, he was not near what he was when he entered. And I believe him finding exit was nothing more but the mercy of God. Yes, here we have a lot. He showed, uh, he showed hospitality to the angelic visitors that he had. He refused uh, the men of the city from having these visitors uh, with any type of sexual relations according to the word of the Lord. That is true. Amen. And so we look at that and say, well, you know, that, that's pretty good DJI, but he's not without some fault as well. We can call, you can call Lot righteous in comparison to his environment. I guess compared to what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, you could have a pretty, 
shady person and say they're righteous. All things are subjective if you want to start going that route. But his soul was not unscathed from his living conditions. The Bible said he seen and he heard their way of life day after day, and it had influence and it had impact upon him. What this tells me then, what Peter is relaying, what this tells me is this, is that God can bring judgment to the ungodly and the sinners, such as the angels that forsook him. God can preserve the righteous like Noah and his family. And God also can shew mercy to those whose righteousness is subdued. All by his choosing. The statement that Abraham spoke to God whenever they had that bargaining going back and forth of Sodom and Gomorrah was simply this. Will you save it for this so many righteous? This is what Abraham said. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? It was a question. Has a question mark at the end, but in reality it's a statement. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? You know what he's saying? He's saying, I know judgment is coming on Sodom. Amen. And what God does, what God does, let me say it like this, with Lot and his family is God's business. Huh? And God will do right according to his standard of rightness and not ours. Right? That's mercy in judgment. When judgment isn't the finality of time. The book that I read in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, tells me at the end of time, he will not be mixing mercy with his judgment. And so if we got by like Lot did, that's not God turning his head. Again. That is God being merciful in a dispensation of time when he can be merciful. That is a lesson for Lot to learn. He lost his wife from it. Huh? Some poor things were birthed out of it. Traced the lives of the Ammonites and the Moabites for the children of Israel. Huh? This is a learning time. This is a learning experience for Lot. Let's go on. That's God's prerogative. Let's go on. Second Peter chapter 2 and verse number 9. Here he continues a little bit in this vein with God's prerogative. He says, the Lord knoweth, Peter says, how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust into the day of judgment to be punished. But chiefly, now he's getting more particular about who this unjust is. But chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Whereas angels which are greater in power and might bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. Peter says... The Lord knows. Everybody say knows. The Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations or out of tests, out of trials. He knows how to do that. Just because, listen very clearly, just because the Lord knows how to deliver, how to deliver the godly does not mean he always will. We can't always denote that the godly going through a trial 
and the ungodly seemingly getting by with not being judged is a moment that is unfair. Because that's sometimes the way we operate. The godly should never have to face anything horrific. The godly should never have to go through any muck, mire, should never have to be afflicted with sickness, should never have to lose a loved one prematurely, should never, should never, should never, should never. On the same hand, oh, the ungodly should never have a good day. They, they, they should never get a promotion at the job. They should never have health and wealth and have their house with a little white picket fence. They should never, they should never. What do we cry? Unfair. God knows how to deliver the godly if he sees fit to deliver the ungodly. But understand that God also knows how to reserve the unjust for the day of judgment and punishment as well. Amen. Just because judgment, I'm going to steal it and put it in our heads. Just because judgment hasn't come is no indication that it won't come. Just as true, just because deliverance may have not come for you does not mean it'll never come. Amen. God knows how to do his stuff. It's not a lack of knowledge. It's not a lack of ability. But he works on a plane far grander than ours. And his understanding supersedes ours. And his ways are higher than our ways. And his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. If we understand everything that God did, then we would be God. Amen. So he, he knows how to deliver. God knows how to rescue. He knows how to rescue. That rescue is, it has a meaning to it, or that deliverance has a meaning to it as a comrade going out on the battlefield and pulling and dragging in his, his other comrade in to, along the ground to say, to God knows how to do all that. God is both a deliverer, though, right here in these verses. God is both a deliverer and a judge. He is both a savior and a lord. And what Peter is taking to task in his, his book is this. False teachers are trying to promote one side of that dynamic more than the other. The deliverer side. The savior side. More so than the judge side. Mm -hmm. More so than the Lord side. Peter goes on a little further. This is where I switch from God's prerogative to the traits of a traitor because Peter's about ready to settle down for a while and start. He has a laundry list, folks, of the traits of the traitor or the false teachers, if you will. Peter goes on to further define these that the Lord has the ability to reserve for the day of judgment. These unjust, he says then a little further there in verse number nine, but he says chiefly them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. He, he kind of hones a little bit in. He, he focuses a little bit in. None of us are exempt. Watch my wording here. None of us are exempt from walking in the flesh. That is the burden of being human. But just because we walk in the flesh is no excuse for walking after that's what the scripture said, that walk after the flesh. Because when you are walking after something, then you are in a position behind it. You are in back of it, in back of something or in back of someone. Thus, you know what that means? That means whatever that is, is the leader. Yes, yes. He says, but chiefly them that walk 
after. He's not saying all those that are human. No, he's saying those that are in their humanity going after the things that concern the world, concern the things that are not of God. They are being led by another world. They're not being led by heaven. They're being led by earthly things. Amen. Yeah. He said they're walking after the flesh. And so when we look at these false teachers, it's quite true. They're indulging in their own corrupt desires, the lust of their unclean, uncleanness, their own corrupt desires. And not just that, look now, he says, but chiefly those that are walking after the flesh or their own desires of uncleanness, also they despise government. And we're not talking about an overflow, uh, overthrow of Trump there in the White House. And we're not talking about petitioning Capitol Hill, nothing like that. But when we talk about despising government, they despise, these false teachers despise authority. Remember, verse 1 of this chapter, they denied the Lord that bought them. And with great emphasis, the word Lord is used because of what that, that master slave, that Lord that Lord relationship, that he's bought us, he owns us, he tells us what to do, where to go, what to say. He says we obey. We don't put up a fuss. We don't put up a fight. Oh, Lord, I didn't know it was going to be getting quiet in here. They despise government. They despise authority. They have a problem with lordship. False teachers have a problem with authority. Here we go. Particularly when it doesn't harmonize with their desire. Just recently, it seems like I heard it. I can't remember where I heard this, but I remember hearing it. And the Lord only knows concerning me. I might even read it. But just here recently, I remember someone saying, or I read somewhere, it said this, that submission begins where, submission begins where agreement ends. Amen. In other words, your Lord, I'll do what you say as long as that's what I want to do. Right? Yeah, he's my Lord. Yeah, he, he asked me to do this. Yeah, I do that. It, that lordship, that ability to succumb to authority, though, really begins when he says something that doesn't align with your desire. Doesn't align with your want. That's where whether or not he is really Lord in your life comes to. Because everybody can walk along with somebody that wants to do what you want to do. It's being able to walk along somebody that is not wanting to do what you want to do, but they got the authority in the matter. He says they, they despise government. They despise authority. Peter continues talking about these traits of a traitor. Peter continues. He describes them. He says they are presumptuous. In other words, they're quite daring. They're quite out there. They're quite forward in a negative sense. There is a good presumptuousness and there is a negative presumptuousness. They are daring in a negative sense. They are, he says, self-willed. What's that mean? They live to please themselves. They live to please themselves. Their self-interests are so important that they disregard how others are affected. They're all about themselves. They're not afraid or neither do they have a conscience about speaking evil of dignities. That's how self-willed and despising of government they are. And look, whenever I did the study on dignities, it spoke of them as glories. Now, there's two other routes you can go with this. They either spoke literally against spiritual beings or they even spoke against human beings that were leaders among them. 
that they were not afraid about speaking evil of either a spiritual leader, and I mean literally spiritual leader, or a natural spiritual leader. They, they didn't mind speaking evil of them. These false teachers did not. Peter says, you got to watch them because, listen, they're doing more than just propagating false doctrine. They're also not being respectful of those who are. Amen. Nonetheless, he says in verse number 11, nonetheless, and he reveals a little contrast here. He says, they don't mind speaking evil of dignities. He says, when there's angels, everybody say angels. He says, whenever there's angels, that's greater in power than them, greater in might than them, and they'll not even bring a railing accusation before the Lord about one of these. What he's saying is this. These people are so caught up in themselves, they are willing to do what an angel won't even will be willing to do. <laughs> he's saying these false teachers must... Man, they, the audacity that they must have to go against the dignity, the, the, the dignitaries and, and despise government and authorities when there's angels greater in power and might that will not attempt what they do. Angels, they will not bring an accusation, the Bible says, against the authorities. But Peter is saying there's mortal men that are driven by their own lusts and desires that will. Folks, I don't want to, I don't want to be labeled among those you did something that even an angel won't do. And we're not talking about on the good side. The Bible goes on. Peter begins to describe them just a little further. These traitors, traits of traitors, verse number 12 and 13. But these, look how he speaks here. As natural brute beast made to be taken and destroyed. Shoot, that's heavy. Speak evil of the things that they understand not and shall utterly perish in their own corruption, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime, spots, Peter says they are, and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. Peter says, these false teachers, these ones that are despising government and authority, Speaking a word, he said, I liken them to natural brute beasts. I liken them to wild animals. Because wild animals are driven by instinct rather than reason. Mm -hmm. Someone say amen. They operate on the basis of how it feels or what they desire. This is what Peter says. He says, such animals, this is for all the hunters. He says, here's what they are for. He says, these are they that are made to be taken and destroyed. So there you go. Go get that big buck, you know. <laughs> I'm joking. Y'all all right? He says such animals are made for capture and kill. He said likewise for these false teachers. He said they're ultimately prepared for judgment lest they amend their ways. They speak evil. They accuse authorities. They speak evil of things they do not understand. They speak evil things they do not understand. Let me go step forward. They speak evil things they do not understand because they don't understand the reason behind it. But see, they don't need a reason if it's beneficial to them. They only need a reason if it's not beneficial to them. Right? You don't usually get the questions unless someone's not in agreement. But the instincts of the false teachers, just as the animals are, 
are motivated by self-interest. If it doesn't serve them, then it's no concern to them. Nor should it be a concern to anybody else in their opinion if it doesn't concern them. Peter, though, he contrasts these false teachers, those who availed themselves. Listen now, he's contrasting them. These false teachers, go back to chapter number one. Remember those that have the like precious faith, that's that received the divine power and been partakers of the divine nature. He's contrasting the false teachers with those people because now... We have one false teachers that he's calling the nature of a brute beast. And we have these others that's experienced the divine power that should have been partakers of a divine nature. The false teachers, the Bible says, look at it in the scripture. The false teachers will perish in their own corruption. But those that were made partakers of his divine nature, the Bible said in in chapter 1 and verse 4, that they will escape the corruption that is in the world through lust. So those that have the divine nature, they're escaping corruption. Those that are continuing after the brute beast, their own interests, amen, wild, if you will, in those affairs, they will perish by their own corruption. And so we we have the nature of a brute beast as the false uh, teachers, and we have the nature of the divine. Those that have been baptized by his name and have grown in the grace of God that they have received. One is taken by their own corruption. The other is freed from the world's corruption. And it's all about what nature you have. And they will receive, Peter says, the reward of unrighteousness. In other words, he says they're going to get what's coming to them. The Phillips Bible translation says it like this. Their wickedness has earned them an evil end and they will be paid in full. Now look what Peter said, does here. He talks about, he talks about, they're, they're, they're false teachers. So, so they're, they're propagating a false doctrine. There's false teaching. But look where he goes now. In verse 13, and shall receive the reward of of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Peter purposely makes a connection between their teaching, their doctrine, and their lifestyle. Because your doctrine will always have a bearing on the way that you live your life. Or at least should. They are false teachers. And now he says they are going through counting it pleasure, rioting in the daytime. That is their teaching. Their false doctrine is having an impact upon their lifestyle, the way that they live. The false teachers, the Bible says, are practicing their pleasure to riot in the daytime. Everybody say pleasure. Comes from the word hedos, where we get our word hedonism, which is the idea if it feels good, it must be good or right. Feels good, good, good. Feels good, it must just go on. Listen. Even in the biblical times, it was uncommon for the works of the flesh. Drunkards, all these different type of uh, what we would call ungodly things. It was common. It was uncommon for the works of the flesh to take place in the daytime. It was. It was. Paul even wrote to the church at Thessalonica. He said that he that be drunken are drunken in the night. It was uncommon culturally for their time. So most evil or ungodly activity was associated with the night. That's when it took place, at night. But Peter says these false teachers are going to come and they are going to do some things that people would normally do at night. They are going to do during the daytime. He says, which does nothing more but underscore their wickedness and their lack of shame. Uh 
most people do some of the things at night. Why? Because it's hidden. It's cloaked in the darkness of the night. You know, that's just the thing. But these people, the audacity, they don't care. They do it in the day. Their lack of, sh- of shame. Notice what the Bible says. Romans 13 and verse 12. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. And let us put on the armor of light. And let us walk honestly as in the day. So right here, even scripture is bearing out. That there was the works of darkness and what happened in the day were two different things. Let's walk honestly as in the day. He said not in writing. See, that wasn't something that happened during the day. But that's what the false teachers are practicing. Writing in the day. And drunkenness. That wasn't happening. Not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envy. And he says in verse 14, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. So he says these false teachers doing these things in the day, he says it underscores their lack of shame. It underscores that they are on a slippery path, a downward path. And he goes on and he he gets quite frank. These false teachers, they are, he says, spots and Blemishes. Peter will later in chapter 3, he will admonish the people he's writing to. If you forget who he's writing to, he's writing to those that obtained the like precious faith. He will admonish them to be diligent that they may be found of him in peace. That's 2 Peter 3, 14. Without spot and blameless. So he tells those that obtained the like precious faith, he says, you don't want to walk in a manner that you're without spot and blameless. And the false teachers, he's saying, you are spots and blemishes. Now, let's go just a little further. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands, you know he's going to marriage, do you? No, we're not. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Paul told the church of Ephesus that Christ loved his church so much that he gave himself for it. And he did this so his church might be sanctified and cleansed by the washing of water by the word. Now listen, false teachers, right? To deny the word, which is what they were doing. To skew the word, which is what they were doing. Is to deny what Christ gave himself for. Because he gave himself for her that she might be sanctified And cleansed in the washing of the water by the word. What's John 1.14 tell us? That the word did what? Became flesh. The word was made flesh in the humanity of Jesus Christ. And it was that flesh that was without sin. According to Corinthians and Hebrews. That he gave to us for the redemption of his church. It was to cleanse his church. And it was to sanctify his church. He did all of that so that he might present to himself a glorious church. He purchased. The only thing that 
the only thing that Christ ever purchased in life was the church. It's the only thing. We should be feel pretty important. We're the only thing he ever purchased. And he purchased it with his own blood. But that blood came from a sinless flesh. That word that had become that flesh. And yet the false teachers, look now, deny, again, verse 1 of chapter 2, they denied the one who bought them. Because the result of him, the result of the word, the result of that word becoming flesh and dying and washing and cleansing his church should result in no spot. Should result in no wrinkle. Should result in a picture of holiness. Should result in void of blemish. But these false teachers evidently have denied the Lord that bought them because they are spots and blemishes and the Lord that bought them provided himself so that they might be spotless and without blemish. Amen. They are spots and blemishes. That's what he calls them. So listen well. If Christ is going to have a glorious church not having spot and without blemish, then it will be a church not including these people because they are spots and ble- That's strong, but that's exactly what it is. Years ago, as a kid growing up, I always thought about, he's going to have a church without spot or blemish. I think about all the church needs to be without spot or blemish. We've got we to be a pure church. That's right. And I always thought about it, some faux pas in the church. But in reality, it's not a faux pas of the church. It's people. The spots and the blemishes are people. For, for Peter, the spot and blemishes were false teachers in his day. They were people. He says, ye are spots. He didn't say you were you are tainted. You are the spot. Do you understand that? He's not saying you're blemished. He's saying you are the blemish. He says if you're looking at the garment and you see the stain, that's you. And if God's going to have a glorious church without that, and that's who I am, then it's going to be without me being a part of it. Again, again, Brother McGee, I don't teach false doctrine. I don't teach it. Brother McGee, I don't teach false doctrine. I don't propagate anything false. I don't know how many times I can say this. You teach more than just with words out your mouth. You teach every day in the way that you live your life. Philippians 2 and 12. I read this. I don't know if you had a chance to get that version or anything, Brother Zach. Were you? No. I'll read it to him, man. Uh, nevertheless, the amplified classic version of Philippians 2.12. Just a few things I want to point out in this as, as I go through it. This, in the amplified version, man, it takes something, it extrapolates, and it's as thick as a backside of a cow. You thought you just had to tell. Whenever you read the King James, it whenever amplified gets over, it just explodes it. Therefore, my dear ones, as you have always obeyed my suggestion, so now... Not only with the enthusiasm 
you would show in my presence, but much more because I am absent. This is Paul talking to the church of Philippi. Work out. This is what we talked about in chapter one. Work out, cultivate, carry out to the go, fully complete your own salvation with reverence and awe and trembling. That's kind of awesome to me, that word trembling there. And even as it's conveyed in the King James, because he's saying you need to do this with a sense of reverence and awe, carrying out and living out these things in your life with a sense of the gravity of what you're doing. All right? And yet these false teachers are people that are not even afraid or tremble at speaking against dignitaries. You see this, 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 this compare contrast. He said with all trembling, self-distrust, with serious caution, tenderness of conscience, watchfulness against temptation. This is what trembling's all about for, for the Amplified. Timidly shrinking from whatever might offend God and discredit the name of Christ. Verse 13, not in your own strength, for it is God who is all the while effectually at work in you, energizing and creating in you the power, and everybody say desire. Creating the power and the desire. Remember, we're, we, because we've been partakers of his divine nature, we're not taken up in the corruption of the lust of this world. So where God works in you, he'll not just bring power, he'll bring a desire to do that which is in alignment with his purpose. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. False teachers' good pleasure is rioting in the daytime, doing those things that would normally just be for the nighttime. They're saying, man, who cares? Feels good. They're doing the day. He says, both to will and to work, you need to be doing his good pleasure and satisfaction and delight. Verse 14, do all things, this is good, do all things without grumbling. Who's Lord? Who's Lord? Who's master? Do all things without grumbling, fault-finding, and complaining against God, and questioning and doubting among yourselves. That you may show yourselves to be blameless. Brother McGee, there's nobody's blameless. Again, we've taught this before. If you look up, if you look up the, uh, the qualifications for a deacon or a bishop, in, in Timothy and in Titus, you'll see in the list of those the, the admonition to be blameless. It is a term. It is a term that comes from boxing in that day. What it basically meant was this, that you could not get a handle on somebody. That a person in boxing would defend themselves in such a way that they couldn't get a handle. They could not get a shot in on them. That's where it came from. So whenever he's asking us to be blameless... He's asking us to have our life defended. And I'm not talking about wrongly, but rightly. That we would have our life so defended, walk in such a manner that someone couldn't get a handle. Couldn't take a shot at us. He says, he says that you may show yourselves to be blameless and guileless, innocent and uncontaminated. Children of God without blemish. Faultless, unrebukable in the midst of a crooked and a wicked generation. Spiritually perverted and perverse. Among whom you are seen. Here's how it should be. Whom you are seen as bright lights. Stars or beacons shining out clearly in the dark world. Says you, as a result of your living, as a result 
of defending yourself, living your life in such a way people can't get a shot on you. You are a light in a darkened world. But the false teachers are dark spots in a lit world. He says, you, you, you are shining bright like stars, beacons shining out clearly in the dark world. Verse 16, holding out to it and offering to all men the word of life. <laughs> so that in the day of Christ, I may have something of which exultantly to rejoice and glory in that I did not run my race in vain or spend my labor to no purpose, the Apostle Paul said. Continue with verse number 12 in our scripture reading. I'll, I'll hasten to a close. So, verse 13, rather. Spots and blemishes they are. He says, sporting. Paul's teachers sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. False teachers are sporting themselves. Note this. Note the word. Sporting themselves with their own deceivings. In other words, not only are they deceiving others, they are deceiving themselves. Have you ever walked? And I know this just, just in real life. You ever walked away from a circumstance or something? And the, some idea or concept, you're just like, man, they're just deceiving themselves. There's people within the church that are just deceiving themselves. He says they're deceiving themselves, particularly when they come together for the feast. And may have had in mind uh, the love feast, may have had in mind uh, the First Corinthians 11 feast. Uh, the pattern after Passover, if you remember anything about the Last Supper, Last Supper, where communion was instituted, that was really a Passover meal that became the Last Supper and communion was given at the end of it. It was a full meal, all times in conjunction with communion. These love feasts were. You can read of it in 1 Corinthians 11. We all times do whenever we do communion about not taking uh, the body, the bread, and the blood unworthily, so on and so forth. But the Bible says that they would come in. Uh, what it was, these people were coming in during this time of, of when they were to be reflecting upon the body of Christ, reflecting upon the blood and the body and what it provided for them. And they were coming in and you know, getting something to drink and eat before others. They were hasty, and they were coming in and just showing themselves. And they were doing all these things when it was a time for reflection upon the body of Christ and the sacrifice that he made. And as a result of that, what was made available to us. But they are among those, these false teachers are among those that come in, as 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine 29 says, that they don't discern the Lord's body. But here's why. And I close you and stand. It's almost impossible to discern the Lord's body when you've denied the Lord that's bought you. By word or by action. He said they are deceiving themselves, particularly whenever they come to these feasts. Why? Because you're supposed to be coming in with reflection about the blood that was shed, the sacrifice that was made for your good standing in the Lord. And they're coming in and they can't even discern any of that because they've denied him as master in their life. Well, let me get a step further. They can't discern Calvary because they can't discern him as their Lord. How is that so, Brother McGee? It all goes back to chapter number one. What happens whenever they start doing this stuff? They'll be blind and can't see afar off and they'll forget that they have been forgiven of their sins. Do you remember that in chapter one? They can't discern. They can't discern the 
Lord's body, that blood and that, that sacrifice that was made. Calvary. Because what happens whenever you tell a lie long enough? You'll start believing it yourself. If misinformation gets out there long enough and enough people repeat it, that's the reason why they have things like Snopes and stuff online where you can go and check the legitimacy of things that fly out there. Why? Because if it's sent enough times, if you've seen enough times, and notable people have shared it enough times, then it must be true. Deceiving yourselves. You can't even discern truth because you have no basis for truth. God's prerogative. If he judged before, he'll judge again. If he preserved before, he can preserve again. If he showed mercy before, that's because it was during a time when it can be shown. There'll be a day when it will not be allowed. It'll only be judgment. There are some traits of the, the traitors, and we'll go on with this. Peter's going to go on because he's not finished yet. He's got a long laundry list. What's amazing to me as we get a little further that this idea of false doctrine, the way you live, affecting everything you live, we're going to find out that these false teachers, according to the word of the Lord, in reality become some of the most sensuous people and some of the most greedy. Two other traits of the traitors. Very sensuous, very greedy, no respect for authority. No holding to the truth. And that's where it really stems from, Brother Mason. That's where the snowball starts at the top of the hill. When you disembrace truth, you open yourself up to a myriad of other things you would never thought twice about. But whenever you ignore truth, you open yourself up. Anything is gained at that moment. That's the reason. Everybody doing all right? That's the reason why. If you give in portions of truth, other core values, say, well, you know, whatever it can be. Other core values in the life of the Christian are going to follow suit. It won't be long. You'll say it's optional to baptize in Jesus' name or in the titles. It won't be long. You'll say it really doesn't matter if you speak in tongues whenever you see the gift of the Holy Ghost. It won't be long. You'll say it really doesn't matter how you look or how you appear. God looks at the heart. Blessed Jesus. you start playing with truth you will start throwing the baby out with the bathwater. it's just a matter of time it's just a matter of time so much so that if we follow that path we'll be numbered of those in the Bible when it says and they will believe a lie and be God, I do not want to forsake your way. God, I do not want to forsake your path. God, I do not want to be, Lord, a spot nor a blemish. But God, I want to be accounted, Lord Jesus, as the church. The church that you shed your blood for and that you purchased the church with that blood. I want, Lord Jesus, to be numbered with them. I want, Lord, to be a part of that glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. God, void, Lord, of those things. Holy before the Lord. I want to be, I want to be a part of that church. God, I want, Lord Jesus, to learn my lessons well when mercy is shown to me in my earthly life. 
God, I want to learn my lesson well. I, I don't want to mistake in that or misunderstand that as though you are, Lord, agreeing with my wrong. I want to understand it that God is being gracious and this is a lesson for me to learn to get back up, dust myself off, and set my feet in the path of righteousness. God, I don't want Oh, God, I don't want to be reserved, Lord, for the day of judgment to punishment. But, God, I want to be reserved, God, for a heaven, Lord Jesus, that is being prepared even now. I pray, oh, God, today, help me, Lord, as Peter has already said, to make my calling and my election sure. I don't want to be numbered, Lord God, with the false teachers. Help me to live my life in such a way that it's not a falsity, that it's not hypocrisy. I pray, oh God, today that it's not one thing on Sunday and something else on Monday. I pray, oh God, today search me, oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the path. Lord, of righteousness, I pray, oh God. Oh, you know us, Lord. You know us. You know our uprising and our down sitting and our thought afar off. You're acquainted with all of our ways. Oh, I don't want to deceive myself. God, it should be a common prayer of ours. Help us, God, not fall prey to deception. Because the horrid thing about deception is this. You don't know when you're being deceived. That's the horrid thing about deception. You don't know when it's happening. God, I pray against, Lord, deception. God, of others to me or of me deceiving myself. 